All right, thank you everyone. We're uh, about to start the next, next session, which is the evolving landscape of ship finance. So if everyone can take their seats. It's, uh, it's an interesting and relevant topic, I think, today with interest rates rising, increasing inflationary pressure, you know, climate change being a topic of discussion in the UN and coming out of a pandemic. And um, I'm really thankful for Capital Link to put together a great panel um, and really interested to get their perspective on those issues and how it affects ship finance. So really quick, uh, some introductions to my right. We have Philip Wunschman, who is head of shipping at Berenberg. Michael Parker, chairman of global shipping for Citibank. Evan Cohen, managing director of CIT. And we have Christos Toscanos, Global Head of Shipping for DNB. And at the far right, we have uh, Erlen Sommerfeld Hogg, who is the co founder and managing director of Oceanus. And I just want to pause one second for, uh, on you, Erlen, just because you have a, a banking background, but um, you know, your, your fellow panelists here are working for banks, and, and your Oceanus is a little bit different. So yeah. just would you just take a quick moment just to explain what Oceanus does and, and, and you know, um, as far as ship finance? Of course. So Oceanus acts as a platform that hosts lenders and ship owners can come to Oceanus and get access and guidance and advice on how to get financing from the various lenders on the platform. So in a way, Oceanus acts as an intermediary we do not provide the funding ourselves, but we work with all sorts of capital available for ship owners. So that is bank financing, leasing houses, alternative debt, and so on. So really covering the wide spectrum of available debt finance. So you really have a unique perspective on a lot of deal flow, I think, these days. Yeah, uh, that could be said. Yes, we see uh, the whole spectrum, really, of uh, asset-backed lending. Great. And I understand uh, from talking to you last night, you have a, a panel of, of 45 lenders that, that are members of your platform. Any, any of uh, the lenders on this panel uh, part of your platform or hope, hoping that they'll be? Yeah. We, uh, so the institutions represented by these gentlemen, uh, three quarters of them uh, have been in contact with us. So we Great. 50 actually, not 45 anymore. 50 lenders on the platform. Thank you. So we're talking about the evolving landscape of ship finance. And uh, I mentioned, mentioned in the introduction, you know, with rising interest rates and increasing inflationary pressure. And a question really for the group, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, is, are you still open for business today or are you going to keep capital on the sidelines and take a wait and see approach? And Philip, maybe I'll start with you since you're to my immediate. Yeah, right. thank you. Um, I think the inflationary pr problem uh, or challenge is, is not that much of, of our key concern at the moment. Obviously, we, we have to look at uh, OPEC's budgets and whether we calculate it right within the projects we have. But I think um, for, for those uh, with, with the rising markets, the deals we did in the last two or f four years, um, you know, they, they are in, in, in a good shape. Uh, so we have low risk and also um, we have always incalculated uh, enough reserves there. So I think there we feel comfortable. 
Um, with regard to new business, obviously, we see more um, clients of ours um, uh, becoming, uh, uh, let's say, a bit more selective on, on, on what they show us as not everyone, everything calculates. And uh, also, uh, let's say, deals where you, where you buy a ship with a charter attached are obviously more difficult to, to justify in an environment where maybe your OPEX or other costs uh, have, have um, risen um, uh, dramatically. This, this would be my initial thoughts to this. Thank you. Michael? I, I, I don't really think inflation interest rates matter directly. I mean, we hope, obviously, inflation will come down reasonably quickly once energy costs come down. I think the question is really whether the impact on consumer demand uh, is significant enough to um, lead to an overcapacity of ships, but I don't think that's the case either. So, and we don't see um, a new round of ordering being triggered other than really replacing container ships and some LNG vessels. So I, I, don't, I think we're all open for business. The question is, what is the business to do? Because part of the problem is that most sectors of shipping have actually had two very good years and have been paying down debt. The rough total of senior debt outstanding is around 300 billion, and that's probably up a tiny bit in the last year or so. But it was about 600 billion before the crisis, you know, when all of uh, Philip's fellow German banks all um, disappeared, if you like. So I think it's a, it's a case of deals are getting done, and actually pricing has become more competitive in some respects. But I don't think the demand for capital is, is, has recovered yet. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing in some respects because ship owners have been earning money and they've actually used a lot of that to reduce leverage. One of the key things for this industry historically has been high leverage and, and that's caused a lot of the problems. So lower leverage is, is where shipping needs to be and, and that's so we're sort of in a normal state of affairs right. but at some point when we go into the issue of new technologies um, you know the capital needs to be redeployed to invest in in the new technologies Evan a different perspective no <clears throat> not really but picking up on what both Philip and Michael said so it's there is no immediate direct impact on us as lending institutions so there's still the demand for capital um, but indirectly on the OPEX level, so we see owners start to suffer crew wages and availability of crew, So, and on the new buildings, on the asset values themselves, they're, they're, uh, they're expensive, and they're looking to their traditional lenders to finance that, and we look at, is this a high value or a high price to pay for uh, the asset? So it starts to impact our clients more directly than us, but it affects how we look at the business. Thank you. Christos, uh, how about DNB? Well, when it comes to uncertainties in the market, when it comes to interest rates rising, I think we've all had excellent training working in shipping and in this extreme volatility, so it, I don't think it really impacts us. The questions we are trying to answer, and Michael alluded to it, is there are technological changes coming, how do we position ourselves? What roles do we play? That is something that we spend a lot of time on. But you no, know, the fundamental for the majority of the shipping markets are positive. We see strong markets on the tanker side. The dry market will recover uh, as soon as China starts opening up. 
I think with containers, we have seen the cyclicality. Most people have been cautious. Gas has really exploded. So it's, it's, it's good times. We see good projects. We are there for business. And, and, and the issues that we are challenging ourselves with has more to do with technology and change rather than volatility, which we have gained a lot of experience in over the years. <laughs> Thank you, Christos. In Erland, um, have you seen the deals that owners uh, of your platform are putting forward? Are, are they changing in some ways to, uh, to yeah. address these issues? Yeah, no, definitely. We, uh, the inflation, of course, leads to higher interest rates, and we calculate all projects also on the equity side, and we see a lot of business cases actually starting to disappear based on the increased interest rates. So, of course, we look at what would be the opportunity on the equity side, and... Uh, just over the last nine months, we've seen the economics totally shift and uh, a case that if they would have invested uh, last winter would actually make rational sense. But now if you lock in the interest rates, it's, no, uh, it's not longer a viable business case. And this refers to uh, new building decisions. So yeah. as you would expect with in increased interest rates, you, you decrease investments and uh, we already see that happening. On the other side, um, to add to that, um, what we can observe, and I think this is a good news for the industry, is that um, the cash side of things is, is really uh, has really increased. And obviously, due to the to the good shape of the market in in most of the segments, if not all at the moment, has has led to to really cash being piled up on accounts, and um, this is not spent, is not invested at the moment, as we, as we I think, touched on here already, in the sense that uh, the new technology is still uncertain, or there are uncertainties regulatory-wise, technology-wise, and so people are waiting. Uh, but um, this, is, this cash remains on the accounts to be invested later. So we, I think the, the major topic we will have for the next two, three years is when you start ordering, when you start to reinvest, to be there then and to be prepared. And I think we all prepare ourselves in different ways with regard to ESG and, and other, other challenges we, we have here. If I can pick up yep. on that, I agree with Philip. But I think the other thing is when CII comes in in January, um, then the issue of retrofitting ships also comes in. And so a lot of those technologies where some owners have held back, they will be forced into spending some of that money on retrofitting old ships in order to get the right rating. So don't, 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 I don't think we should see it as nothing is happening. A lot is going to happen. And retrofitting is where most of the money is going to go in the next few years mm -hmm. rather than on ordering old technology, new, new vessels. Thank you. Which is why it's good that ship owners are in a strong liquid position. And touching on that, you know, ship owners are in a stronger position. Um, you know, I've heard they're repaying loans back a lot earlier, um, you know, causing, causing banks to have to consider, like, redeploying capital. Is, is that, like, a bit harder to do? Is it harder to find those, those deals, that, you know, to quickly turn that money around? Um, Philip, maybe a question for you. Yeah, okay. Um, I think uh, you're right. Um, the first half was, was uh, very much about early repayments. Obviously, many took profit of the markets uh, in, in container, but also in bulk. Um, 
and uh, we have uh, seen, uh, let's say, uh, a very busy first quarter, less busy second quarter. I think everyone was a bit puzzled by the, the, all the un macro uncertainties with the war, with the sanctions, uh, so very operational, so less new deals. And uh, since uh, summer break has, has, uh, is over, we see more deal uh, inquiries on the table. So I think uh, net on net, it's, it's a year where we, where we basically equal repayments and, and new, new deals, at least for, for ourselves. Uh, so this is, this is the picture for, for now. Evan? Yes, yeah, it's, it's actually very similar. So to put some, give some color to it, I, I have not, never seen this level of prepayments. Uh, on one level, it's, it's good because you like to see your clients, your ship owners making what you think are smart decisions. Okay, You don't need the debt. You have so much cash. Repay, repay the debt. On the other hand, I also have a job to do. I like people to borrow money. So it, it's probably close to what um, Philip mentioned. We probably will see the same amount uh, going out and coming back in, in this year. So net on net, not too much of a move. We're still finding good business, but we have more coming back than I've ever seen before. Christos? Bankers are never happy. We typically <laughs> give our clients a hard time because they're over-levered, they don't pay debt down quick enough, they don't manage their balance sheet. Now they're paying down, we don't like it either. I, I, think, I think it's a very good thing that uh, companies are using this opportunity and these strong markets to bolster their balance sheets. I think that that is very good. Uh, the cash flow that is being generated, they can use in various ways. Uh, I, I think we're going to see more consolidation as companies get stronger. That, that's a good thing. And, you know, you will see different opportunities there. Uh, there's always um, ways to put in place a smarter capital structure, a more efficient capital structure for, for companies. So I think it's a net positive uh, that we see companies uh, resulting to healthier uh, balance sheets. Erland, in your... Um in an, an advisory role, do you uh, like ever help ship owners decide whether or not to repay early or, or keep keep uh, keep those loans working? Or I think that for everyone in ship finance, this is obviously a positive high velocity in uh, this uh, industry. I Many creates job also on the financing side. Uh, the, all the banks work at uh, all cylinders just to try to keep their book uh, constant, and that's that's positive, of course. You know, one of the ways that uh, you know to keep capital working is, is um, especially with alternative debt providers coming into the market, is is you know maybe senior lenders taking a, a position on on the back end of financing, you know providing financing to the lessors. Um, do, do any of the, uh, the uh, Philip? I think you do that some of that type of financing. Do you with the, the historically high charter rates? Is this more of a challenge, or do you have to be more cautious about that? I think. Um that is not so much the question. In the end, um, for us, it, it's, it's an interesting field as uh, these um, debt, alternative debt funds are professional market participants. So it's, it's a very rational discussion on, on things. And this back leveraging or this fund level financing is something where we feel comfortable as, as you finance a portfolio of, of uh, vessels or back lever loans which they provide to the industry. So I think this diversification effect is, is, is playing out positively here, um, especially if you have, um, let's say, um, experienced asset managers or 
uh, alternative debt fund managers behind that. So I think this is this is an, uh, an attractive uh, field. I think the major the major challenges here are rather on the on the compliance side for uh, for let's say senior lenders for regulated banks. Uh, it's obvious to to make the KYC compliance checks where these uh, let's say alternative debt providers have a bit more room to maneuver into jurisdictions which senior lenders uh, um, normally may not touch these days. Um, so this this. W- I would consider to be uh, the major challenge rather than charter rates or, or asset values. Evan, do you have? Uh, no, I very much agree. We, that is an important part of our business at uh, CIT. So we have a third of our business is supporting alternative lenders. So the, the people you all know, the Entrust, the MAPs, the Northerns, and no, quite a good business for us, and we in fact work together with Philip on one, jointly providing back leverage for one of the lenders. So, thank you. Um, I, I guess just one last question on, on keeping your capital working. Um, you know, as far as, as deal size, um, do you are, are you know for new deals? Would you consider keeping your money? Um, are, are you, would do you look to be part of a larger transaction, or will you? Uh, just uh, stand alone in, in providing these new financing. Any like particular sweet spots or, or thoughts on, on those types of transactions? No, we're pre- we're pretty flexible on that. So, for us, the, in terms of deal size, it's thirty-five to forty million. We're happy to partner with other lenders to do that. We're happy to do it bilaterally. Where we're less flexible is on the asset type. We're focusing continuously on the main liquid asset types that dry bulk container ships and tankers. Uh, that's what we know a little bit about, and we, we stay there. Christos? I mean, our business model and our focus is more towards the, the more sophisticated end of the, of the spectrum. We will do bilaterals. We will do club deals. But where we really make a difference is, you know, big syndicates, big underwrites, bridge-to-capital market transactions. And what we focus on is the amount of capital we can make available to our clients, not necessarily how much we can keep on our balance sheet. We like to turn our capital quickly, uh, and, and, and we just focus on you know what's the most most efficient way for our clients to access capital. It could be our balance sheet, it could be the capital market. So it's it's a mix. It's a mix. Michael, the same for City or? Well, I, I it's, it's really about return on capital. I mean, I think the um, you know the, the the Fed imposed an additional one percent capital buffer on the big U.S. banks a few months ago, which was unexpected, and that that puts stresses on capital and returns, and we're all fighting for a share of capital in our institutions, and and so it doesn't, you know, we, we do bilaterals, we do syndicated loans, but ultimately it's about returns from the relationships we have with those those clients. I think in terms of sector the, um, there's an inevitable issue of um, emissions and the sectors. You know, we can't. But, you know, the elephant in the room, if you like, is we're all going to be measuring emissions, whether you're part of the Poseidon principles or not, because all bank regulators will insist upon some form of that. And of course, that's been um, f- formalised. It's sort of interesting thing. All the, think of all the things that have happened since we last met in this room. And the significant ones 
are the Net Zero Banking Alliance and the commitment to 1.5 on a sustainable basis by those signatories. And that's the $130 billion of capital to go to decarbonize industry globally, of which shipping is obviously a part. And so there are decisions, and again, as I said, you know, CII EXI coming in January are going to change a lot of things en route to um, en route to what we finance being around the cash flow generated from those assets and, and it isn't about the freight rate that the owner charges it's going to be about that and the emissions of the vessel. You already see the commercial decisions being made by Sea Cargo Charter members around whether they'll charter a vessel or not because of the history of emissions in recent voyages of that ship. So how we deploy our capital is a competition within our, most of our organizations, and it's going to be measured in lots of different ways going forward. And, and these are things we touched on three years ago. We just launched the Poseidon Principles in June 2019, but the world has changed, and it's only going to carry on changing. And so a lot of the things that we have been used to doing are going to change dramatically over the next few years. We're sort of in a, I don't want to call it a phony war, but it's not like that. But as the people sort of make decisions, start to feel around the decisions they need to make, particularly investment decisions for ship owners, what technology to invest in, which is why a lot are not making those decisions yet, um, it, it's going to change the whole way the industry gets financed, but not quite yet. Right. But we have to be all in a position to be able to finance that change fairly soon. And so that's why it's a very good thing that shipping is liquid, leverage is lower, because it makes that transition when it happens much better and much more financeable. Philip, at uh, Berenberg, is that is ESG like is that something that is part of your uh, credit decisions? Are you, are you writing that into your loans? Uh, those types of policies? Yeah, I think definitely it is, or it starts to be. We are not uh, part of the Poseidon principle so far. Michael didn't yet, convince yet. me yet. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think the reason for that is not Michael or, or the Poseidon principles, which I fully appreciate and understand. But as, as a private bank working with institutional capital, mostly from the European uh, area, where you have regulated uh, entities uh, according to EU taxonomy and uh, according to the non-disclosure or disclosure uh, regulation from the EU, uh, meaning that these have some specifics uh, which are uh, a bit different to banks, uh, but uh, driving in the same direction. So this for us means that we working currently on an ESG scoring, which will be part of our credit decision going forward. Uh, always uh, keeping in mind, and you know that Berenberg is focusing on second-hand tonnage so far, um, I think we have to make sure in this transition over the next 10 years that the existing fleet still has access to financing. I think this is one of the major tasks I see, um, and this has not become easier with these regulatory um, steps, especially within the EU, where you also look very much at the cargo side as defining dedicated to the transport of fossil fuel. That's the, the, the main sentence here, uh, which, which makes it more challenging for European regulated banks and investors to allocate capital into, uh, for example, everything which is tankers, maybe except for chemical tankers, 
and uh, anything which is uh, bulkers uh, attached to coal transport. So I think there we have an issue uh, which we have to, to find a way around and uh, we currently sound this uh, for, for our portfolio and for deals going forward, what, what tonnage can we finance yeah, going forward and um, uh, what needs to be also a kind of bonus malus system maybe uh, which we have seen already in, in, in public market transactions, sustainability-linked bonds and so on, um, which have now to be translated also in the private credit market going forward, which will take a bit of time, um, but I think which will definitely come, especially if we banks being started to regulate it also uh, with our capital, uh, um, let's say, to be allocated into, into um, sustainable or non-sustainable and then having a, a different cost of capital for that. Evan, you're, I don't think CIT is a member of the Poseidon principles either. You, you have a, a similar view of, of Philip as far as um, ESG? And, and yeah, yeah, yes, we do. So I think that's one of the reasons why Michael's in between the two of us. But uh, Michael mentioned three, three years ago when we last met, it was a question of if, not when. And now it's really when, it's not if anymore. This is coming into place. On January, we're looking and I'm booking deals now that have ESG components and milestones in them. Uh, starting January 1st, when vessels are getting scored and they no longer can get chartered from Cargill because they're a D and not a B, that's going to have an immediate impact. So even if we weren't all interested in saving the planet, we would be interested in how is a ship owner going to pay us back. And <clears throat> if they're not compliant, we can't finance them. And this is just going to roll out. I don't know the exact timing of when the scoring is going to happen, but it is in near term, not in long term anymore. So thanks to Michael. Well, I, 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 I'm glad Evan said that. I was worrying that I got the wrong email address because he never replied to my email. Um, <laughs> it's a big club. And, um, so. and no, the Poseidon Principles for Marine Insurance, which launched at the end of last year, they have an associate membership. And it, it, maybe we should have an associate membership for banks sitting either side of me that will automatically trigger into full membership in three years' time or something. But, we'll, we'll, but I'm glad you've said it's when, not if, because I think you know that, that that's right. Christos, um, yeah. No, I think I think we are approaching the whole the whole matter in, in, in the wrong way. We of course ESG is of course extremely important. You know we have our targets. You know we have our net zero ambitions. You know the Poseidon principles extremely important, uh, but it's not a necessary evil. I mean the industry is being disrupted in a major major way. So it's not I need to tick the box, you know, I need to measure things and just you know, pass the test. If you don't change, if you don't change your business model radically as a ship owner or as a shipping bank, you run the risk of becoming extinct. That is what we are trying to guard against, not to, to tick some box or fill a paper or, you know, put the wool over our credit committee's eyes. It's trying to figure out which are the companies that are going to survive this wave, which are the companies that understand that their business is changing, it's going to be very different. Maybe the ships they're building today are not going to have a life of 20 years. And how do we structure to be survivors and to be able to back the winners on the other side? That, that's the key. That's why it's so important for us, not just to tick the box. Right. Great. 
Great answer. Um, er Erland, from your perspective, um, you know, working so closely with many different ship owners, um, do you see, you know, bigger or smaller ship owners, you know, taking more or less initiative in this area? Or? Yeah, it's really is on everyone's mind. So we see small ship owners trying to find opportunities here in this space, also on the new building side. So it's not exclusively on the larger corporates' mind, the whole ESG topic, because there are many opportunities. Um, original new ship designs with uh, transitional fuels, not only thinking about ammonia or hydrogen. We have ship owners looking into LNG propulsion. Um, so this is definitely on the mind of also the smaller ship owners. The majority of the traffic on our platform, uh, as Philip uh, also uh, alludes to, it, 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 this is second-hand tonnage that is really the majority of what we see. And uh, in that space, I think what a lot of our lenders, the, what they think about is that they will need to be there also for this uh, more mature tonnage instead of uh, creating a lot of stranded assets. That's not the best solution for the planet either, that you end up uh, having to scrap a lot of vessels that have uh, perhaps 10 years useful economic lifetime le left. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, it's worth remembering that this, the whole transition will take uh, decades. We, we know that this is not uh, something that will be solved in a matter of five years. And in order to, I mean, shipping as a whole, it really supports uh, the living of standard uh, that everyone on this planet knows about. And if you would rush any transition here, you would materially impact the standards of living too quickly for a lot of people. And then this whole transition will lose uh, political support. So to have some patience in this transition, I think... Um, people need to realize how long this will actually take. This is, uh, this is really a several decades effort that will take place, not uh, five or six years. So really keeping political support for this over a long period, really thinking as a marathon rather than a sprint will be uh, in everyone's interest. And uh, during that long phase, you also need to support the ship owners who not only look at new buildings, but uh, have remaining mature tonnage that still serves a vital purpose uh, in this industry. Michael? I, 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 I don't disagree that it will take a long time because uh, you know, it'll take probably till 2060 or beyond that for the existing fleet today to sort of finally have disappeared. But I think the, the um, commitments banks signed up to the Net Zero Banking Alliance is to forecast the emissions from the, all their portfolios, but including shipping, in 2030 and to do that by mid-24. So some banks are already going through that process of having to commit to emissions from their shipping portfolios in 2030. And that means making decisions now about the type of things they are financing. And clearly there will be evolution in terms of the technological development in the transition and retrofitting that will reduce their, those emissions. The key decision for shipping made at the COP26 in Glasgow was the Clyde Bank Declaration that committed now 25 governments, including the US, the UK, most of the major European countries and many of the Asian countries, is to create green corridors. 
Now, these will, and the key thing about that when you read it is it's not some aspiration by 2050. It is a commitment by governments to create the frameworks for green corridors within five years. And you've seen lots of announcements about port-to-port stuff. But those green corridors will come into existence within this decade because by 2030, and there's not much disagreement around this if you read DNV's latest forecast, if you look at the transition strategy published by the Global Maritime Forum, 5% of all fuels have to be zero-emission fuels by 2030 if shipping is going to meet its, its Paris Agreement, its participation, if you like, in reaching Paris Agreement. And so, of course, a lot of the existing world fleet today will still be in operation in 2030, but it will have to have lower emissions through the, through the retrofitting. But by 2030, all investment will be in zero-emission ships. I think the risk of stranded assets, frankly, is quite low, but it'll take, whilst it will take 20 or 30 years after 30 for the whole fleet to change, every decision will be geared to net zero, 1.5, whatever you want to call it. And so that is within this decade. And so all the investment decisions made in shipping by investors, by lenders, in the next seven years, by the end of that seven years, it will be only one way. Now, it doesn't mean that, of course, ships that are rated... D&E under the um, CII won't still exist in coastal trades in some countries and things. There will always be that. But I think the, 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 and the key other thing about shipping is when they define scope three emissions, every other industry, their supply chain is determined by what the emissions are from shipping. And so there's a vested interest in consumer companies in the oil companies, the commodity companies, in actually lowering their shipping emissions because their own scope three emissions will also reduce that way. So it will take a long time before we've replaced the whole fleet, but I think the key decisions around that are being made now and will only accelerate in the next few years. I think one of the other ways that um, you can have a a positive impact on the environment, at least I've I've seen in the press, is, is buying carbon offsets um, to have like a carbon neutral voyage is, is that you know part of uh, anyone's credit decision or is that more like marketing of ship owners to charters to um, um... I think it's not yet part of our credit uh, decision making but at least we uh, carefully observe the uh, installation of this ETS market uh, which will come into force by 2024 and uh, which will then create a situation where this industry starts to be part of this trading activities around uh, certificates. Yeah? And I think uh, also for, for that, um, maybe uh, it's worth to consider banks to, to be part of that uh, as, as we are efficient traders in, in ethics in, in all kind of currencies for you, why shouldn't we be also um, supporting your efforts in this respect if you have to sell, buy, whatever. Uh, but the first step needs to be that you become aware of what is uh, the emissions uh, you, 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 have to, you have to buy in or, or uh, whether you have, uh, let's say, a, a better um, a b- better than, than planned uh, outcome for that. So I think uh, this is something where there's an early, uh, another area of early education of all of us, 
but this will come into force and uh, impl be implemented uh, rather sooner than later. Anyone else have a view on that? Or and Philip's answer was, was on point. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to touch this question or not, but you know, sanctions is a, is a big thing these days. Are, are there any sectors that uh, you know maybe you're not willing to get involved with as far as lending or or particular transaction types? Evan, yeah, oh. that's pretty binary. There mm -hmm. are sanctions, and yeah. we do our part in enforcing them. So we have 24/7 real-time monitoring through various services. We happen to use Purple Track, and no, that's an important part. And if someone is calling on a port in Venezuela, we're touching base with the client and finding out what cargo they're carrying and why they're there. Okay, the third time they're carrying the same cargo of uh, grain, they get a little tired of our phone call, but no, that's that's something that's non-negotiable. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, no, I had understood that uh, a lot of banks these days have vessel tracking s software, so they're, they're, they're keeping close eye on, on, on the, the ships that they're financing. I, I guess another uh, question, and they may be a little uh, bit different, is you know, coming out of uh, the pandemic and uh, looking at the uh, evolution of ship finance, you know, ha has, has your work areas you know, uh, changed dr uh, dramatically? I, I know we're probably back in the office somewhat, um, are, are, is there a decision for, for all of us to come back? Is that, has that impacted how like, transactions have gotten done uh, over the past couple of years uh, in any way? Um, throwing it out, uh, Christos. Most our work is done on the road, so not yeah. much change there. <laughs> but when it comes to, um, to policies, yes, we have implemented flexible working hours. Um, people are uh, you know, working from home when, when, when appropriate. And, you know, we see that this works. It, it works well. Particularly when you uh, have global teams, it increases the frequency of communication. You have more direct access to people. It does not replace personal contact, of course, but it's a useful tool, and we're using it. Thank you, Christos. Michael? I think that the, the language has begun to change, um, and I would expect most large institutions to have most people fully back in the office by the beginning of next year. I look around me and I look at my fellow panelists and clearly not wearing a tie for two and a half years, I've got used to it, but I apologize for being underdressed in this room. <laughs> no, I uh, can only confirm it's, it's good to be back. We are all back in, in the office, uh, basically, and uh, it makes sense, you know, um, especially the creative part of things, uh, discussing things uh, uh, early on, uh, being also faster than in decision-making, uh, putting out indications or term sheets for you. So I think there's a lot of aspects, and all the d topics we discussed here need a lot of, let's say, also brainstorming activity, and brainstorming activity through video, uh, yeah, I don't know. The, 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 there's one important point, I think, there about what we did during the pandemic in shipping through Zoom, the acceleration of the whole issue around decarbonization would not have happened as fast if we hadn't had the pandemic. Because what we were able to do in things like the Getting to Zero Coalition and all the other workforces, if you like, was to bring people together who would not normally appear 
at the same conference together. They wouldn't fly to the same meeting. And you were able to bring people into a discussion about a topic today on Zoom rather than over a period of two or three years when you happen to persuade people to go and talk to people. And that, that was actually incredible to watch, and I think that has accelerated the progress that we've actually made. We know that you can't make relationships through Zoom, and that's why getting back together is so important. But, but I think we also learned that using the technology that became available was a valuable tool in other respects, and, and uh, you know, that, that's been very important. Great point. Erland, you know, thank you for that question that uh, you let me present. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or? I completely agree with what Michael said here now, that uh, the pandemic has really accelerated uh, the adoption of these digital tools, and they don't replace uh, physical contact, but just the fact that you can have the initial meeting uh, digitally make sure that really enables you to accelerate these business development processes and you can have the initial meeting. Later on, of course, you can uh, fly and meet, but it really uh, yeah, really accelerates the speed of these processes uh, in our view. And for Oceanus, it's uh, been a bit of a blessing in disguise, uh, to be frank, with uh, enabling these tools to uh, be adopted worldwide. Thank you. Evan, last lot, uh, since we're out uh, of time. Sure. We were, we were very fortunate in a way. We were a relatively small team, and we could continue doing our work from home for two years. So we could continue what we could do. We could continue working together. We could still grow our business. What we couldn't do is the face-to-face -face that you really do need with as you have new members to the team. And as Christos alluded to, you really need to see the clients. So you can go 18 months without seeing your clients in person, but um, no, we can't wait more than that. What we don't miss is a three-hour commute every day. So <laughs> going back to that full-time, we'll go kicking and screaming, but we will be back more in the office. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas.